Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. We live in a world of fees. Airlines, hotels, food delivery, and especially car dealers all charge excessive last-minute fees. When you want something badly enough, it feels like your only choice is to pay up. But what if you had a choice to take a stand instead? At Carvana, we believe in treating you better. With zero hidden fees, you can drive off without feeling ripped off. That's what it means to live fearlessly with Carvana. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's right now. Get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just ninety nine cents until eleven a.m. Price of participation may vary. Hello, everyone. It is time for another episode of the Witching Hour. You know me, and you know Haley. But look who else we have here with us today. It's Amy Simons. Amy, how are you doing? Congratulations. She dies tomorrow. I'm so excited that we're getting to talk about another movie from you as a director. Thank you. I'm very excited to be talking about my movie as well. As you should be. Um, speaking about your work as a director, it's been it's been a good while since Sun Don't Shine. I think uh, 2012, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, premiered at South by Southwest in 2012. Yes, yes. Is there any particular reason you waited this long to make your next feature? Was it a matter of being busy with other things or was it a matter of being drawn to other storytelling formats? Yeah, I, I, there's there's a lot of that. I mean, I that it, very busy with other things and I um, was lucky to do the girlfriend experience two seasons of the girlfriend experience and then lucky to be able to direct two episodes of Atlanta. And um, so I was just, you know, the, in terms of um, in terms of writing and directing, like with television for me, it's like, you know, whether it's a movie or a long format in television, I always treated the girlfriend experience. Um, in my opinion, it's like I made two giant movies. Um, I always approached um, both seasons as long format movies. So for me, it doesn't feel like uh, I've waited that long. But, um, you know, it's just a different medium. But but it, but it, in, in an independent level, um, I was also, you know, you know, I've been writing a lot for television and I part of the impetus of making this next one was, you know, it takes a long time to develop stuff for television. And I was with my nature of being an independent filmmaker. I don't like waiting around. So I got incredibly anxious and I was just like, I have to make something right now. So that became this movie. Do you think as a sort of I'm curious. Uh, as you just expressed very well, you're very busy and you work in a lot of capacities um, when it comes to being, whether you're doing acting, writing, directing, producing, how do you determine which role to take with which project? Is it a matter of what's available or do different projects speak to a different part of your creative personality? Um it's, it's, it's a lot of necessity, I guess, but, um, with, with, with writing and directing, you know, with on TV and then also with independent film, for me, the way that I approach directing and, and sort of show running, it's, it's sort of intrinsic. It's part of the directing process is actually the, is, is part in hand a producerial process because I, I like to have my hands in the uh, production side, because then, you know, I, I think a lot of people like to, or like to think that there's, you know, or I guess everyone has their own process, but I, as a director feel that the, the producing side of things allows me to be creative on the directing side of things. All of these budget conversations allow me to have this playground, you know, um, as a filmmaker. And that's, I'm speaking specifically for like television or like the larger budget things but but on the on the independent side it's just it, they're just sort of intrinsically the same thing you know they like you you're you are your producer you are one of the producers not to, uh, and I had I'm lucky to have really great producers Dave Lawson who did this this um 
produced for me on this, who took care of all the like, you know, tedious union documents and all these things. And, um, and Adela Romanski who produced my second season of, um, girlfriend experience and Kim Sherman who produced, um, some don't shine, you know, it, you're so in tandem with your, with your producer as a director on these things, because, for me, at least, the way that I do things is, is it's like I need to know what money is being spent on things because it affects m- the creative decisions that I can make. Bringing back your your recent uh, TV gigs, do you find that directing for television has come in handy and made much of a difference on this next feature film? The only thing that it's that it's made a difference on is is uh, I you know it, it was. It, it was great for me to to have the experience of just running a show in general because it's it's just like so much more massive in terms of not not well yes it was a lot more money than I had for any of these independent films but like it's a much more massive thing but it's also with specifically with the girlfriend experience it's just a longer time so you have to like keep up and you have to be you know simultaneously like um, plan so far in, a, 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 in advance and you have to be so prepared for such an extended period of time, but simultaneously like stay on your toes um, for such an ex- like an expanded period of time, like sort of plan the whole thing and then be very like intuitive and sort of um, on, um, on your toes, like on the day. Um, and so that was a great experience. But, but in addition to that, it's like, you know, I think those shows are very strange in their own right, but they are much more, they're much more commercial in, well, I can't really say that about Atlanta, but like, but that's not my show personally, <laughs> but like they all have their own strangeness in a way, but writing for TV is a little more straightforward and having, you know, done television and then having um, it be well received, like um, it, with the girlfriend experience and then even with Atlanta, there was a level of, um, for me, in making the movie, I didn't have to prove anything, you know, like I didn't have to be like, be very conscious of like the filmmaking and proving to people that I technically knew things. Not that I was necessarily, I, I wasn't necessarily conscious of that when I was making Sun Don't Shine because I was just, I was still in a phase of like my naivete was like my greatest strength, if that makes sense. So I wasn't even questioning if I knew what to do. Um, but you know, like, but like, with with having a, a second feature, there's a there's there there could be, um, in a way, a, a pressure of having to prove that you know what you're doing, and it wasn't like a fluke or you know. But I didn't have that pressure because I had already done television and it was already well received, and it was already like oh, uh, like at the very least, even if I made a bad, even if if She Dies Tomorrow was a bad movie, I was like I've already proven myself. So there was like a fearlessness going into it that I, you know, or, or uh, yeah, a lack of anxiety. I mean, the film is about anxiety, but a lack of anxiety about proving myself on like a sophomore feature. You bring up uh, the idea of projects being commercial. I, I am curious, did anyone try to steer this story in a more commercial direction? Because like, in a sense, you've got you know, something like contagion or like a catchy apocalyptic type scenario here. And those are, you know, big money makers. Oh, complete. Uh, yes. There was one, this was the, I mean, the, there was early on where I was sort of like flirting with the idea of somebody else financing it. Um, and that this was, and this was basically, I, I had one phone call about somebody else financing it. And like the number that they were talking about financing it for, I was like, I can do that. Like with my pet cemetery money, last time we talked, um, that paid for the movie. Uh, but <laughs> um, I was like, I could do that. But the, I remember on the phone, like, like describing the idea to them, and they were like, Oh, cool! Do we get to see like a lot of people die? And I was like, I don't think we're on the same page here. And you know, I like it was it was it was more of a genre like company. I won't say who, but like that's the thing is that that they have a very specific you know thing that they're trying to sell. And and like and I was like, I just don't want it to be that. I want it to be the, its own thing and play around with these horror tropes, but not you know not go in the traditional horror way or the way that people think horror should go. I wanted to it to evolve as its own thing. So that that was one conversation I had and I was like, oh, I'm self-financing this. Like I I don't want to have this conversation ever again. You know, like having to explain like why it's interesting and why it's an alluring idea and why we don't need to see like all these kills on screens. Like 
like basically I got asked like how many kills do we get like in this movie because this is great everyone dies and I'm like oh mm. <laughs> and I think like actually in just to not have the conversation I was like they're like do we get to see everyone die and I was like sure like because I was like already knew in my head I wasn't working with them <laughs> when so I'm curious on the subject of more commercial projects. I was very super lucky to do a set visit on Alien Covenant, which is one of the most spectacular, stunning sets I've ever seen in my life. When you perform in a film like that and see uh, the grandiosity of that kind of set and immersive environment, is that something you ever want to do in your career, a project on that scale? Or does it, did it at all recontextualize like the extent to which you can build worlds on screen? I mean, that was the, it was the, I still think about that time. And if I can explain to like adults that it's like the, it was like a giant, it was going to a giant amusement park built for yourself where you can run around. I mean, and I quite literally ran around the set, like screaming and like do it, you know, in this 360 set. I mean, the, the scene that I did for, for, um, for, uh, for Ridley, like is, is like, it, he had five cameras set up. So I was doing the entire sequence throughout the set that was built 360, the spaceship, like going to the med bay, running to the cockpit and like screaming, like they had all these cameras. So it was like doing a play, but like you're immersed in the world. So it's like, you're not on stage, you're in the actual spaceship. It was wild and so fun. And like the, the spaceship I'm piloting was on hydraulics. And so, like, you're just in, like, Universal Studios, like, all like all day long. And, like, you get to, like, be in the Universal ride. Like, you get to be the character in the Universal ride, um, which is, is wild. But uh, here's the thing that I, I will say. It was magnificent as a director to see, well, one, to be around Ridley Scott. But, two, to watch him wield this massive machine of, of uh, like, I, I don't know what, I don't know the budget. It's, it's monopoly money at a certain point to me. Cause so much, it's like a, 150, 200, who knows? It could be 500 million. It's all the same to me. It's just money I don't have, but, um, it, but he, uh, he, yeah, he, it was, it was magnificent to watch him wield this machine. That's $150 million, you know, and he knew how to do it and he did it with such confidence and, and, but, and here's the thing, he, but he's Ridley Scott and I'm not saying, and I say this in particular because the other thing to watch him wield this machine and be able to function in this, like this huge, like way, I was also struck. And this is like such a shout out to him. And I hope he hears it. Like, cause I try to say this all the time. He's, it was also wild to me how punk he was with it. And how, like, almost reckless, I, I would say reckless, but it's Ridley Scott. You know what I mean? Like, but if it were any other filmmaker, studios would be like, ah, oh, no, you're not doing that. So, like, you, you know, like, he would just on the day be like, this is going to be better, so we're going to do it this way now. And, like, there was nobody telling him no. And I was like, that is so cool. But, like, the only way that I would do it is probably later in my career where, you know, where it, it like I'm really Scott. This is my fantasy. I'm gonna pull out in the universe where I'm the female version of Ridley Scott and um, <laughs> setting my intentions and um, and and no and everyone's just letting me like wield this machine, you know? Because like like that's the thing is like you, you know when somebody says, "Do you want to make something for 150 million?" I'm like, I want to do it like Ridley Scott did, but I'm not Ridley Scott, you know. <laughs> I like the sound of that. I, I hope that you saying it like wills it into existence because I want to see you take it to that level. Yeah, let's the secret that into reality. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say is maybe one pro and one con of self-financing your own movie? Because I imagine it gives you creative control, but then does, you know, does that sinking feeling that you're putting it all on the line, you know, creep in at all? You Well, luckily... Um, this is going to sound like I pay for my friends. <laughs> um, luckily, like I, I'm not a, I'm not, I don't really spend a lot of money and I'm not really into things. I actually have a really strange relationship with things. Like I, I, I and I've had this for quite a long time as I feel like things beget things beget things, you know, you buy like 
I don't know, a dining room table. Now you need chairs. Then you need placemats. Now you need plates because otherwise, why do you have a dining room table? And I know these things are like normal things that people have, but like, I don't, I don't, I, I spend, I spend my money. Like it's basically like uh, from the beginning in independent film, every dollar I would make on, um, on like any extra dollar I had aside from like survival and like eating. And even then, um, that I made some questionable, questionable decisions, but like, um, I would put back into filmmaking. And so uh, when I, I've always wanted to be in a position, you know, in, in taking a page from like Steven Sutterberg and who has been incredibly supportive throughout my career, um, obviously but, uh, taking a page from him. It's like, he just does it. And he just like, and it's, it's, it's what he wants to be doing. It's like, I, um, I went on a, va- I, for the very first time went on a vacation last year and I was like, I've never done this before. Like I've never gone on a vacation for myself and it was very strange to me, but like, because, because I just want to be making the movie, like that's the fun thing. So, and also I work with my friends, you know, and it's fun to have this playground. And so the mentality that I like go into it, whether it was what, you know, whether it was the budget that, that I made it for, or if it was, if it was even less money, my mentality is like, this is what I'm, this is what I want to be doing. This is what I'm spending my money on because I want to be doing it. Not, um, and, and sure there's a fear of return, but I'm not like, I'm not putting my I'm not selling my house to make a movie. You know, there's, there's a difference. I'm, I'm, I'm an adult now. And I like understand, like I, there used to be a, a point when I was younger where I would starve and put money into like Sundowshine, basically how that was made. But, um, but uh, yeah, it, I guess my attitude with money was like, I just pretended like that money didn't exist and it was going into a movie. Cause I'm so frugal. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't, I didn't. And I'm, uh, and I will say, I, I have to say, I have the luxury at this point in my life and in my career that I'm not living paycheck to paycheck. I've definitely experienced that, but I'm, I have the luxury at this point that I'm not living paycheck to paycheck. We'll see, we'll see if I keep making movies like this, I might go back to that, but um, you know, it's what I want anyways, you know? So you describe making this move. I mean, you describe making movies period, almost like as another form of vacation in a sense, like you enjoy doing it. You enjoy being with your friends, but then I think about what this movie is about and being in that kind of headspace. So do you not get wrapped up in the story you're telling in that respect? And can you still fully enjoy the experience? Yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, it's, it's like, um, it's like the movie I'm spreading the anxiety and it kind of sort of alleviates, it. Um, but, you know, um, but no, I mean, in real life dealing, you know, dealing with what I'm trying to convey in, you know, that's the hard stuff dealing with like real life is the hard stuff when you're, when you're making the movie, like Kate, Kate Shield, the lead actress and I, who was also in Sun Don't Shine, which is also an anxiety ride um, in a way. We always describe this one is a little more overt, but we always describe my work as like secret comedies because we find them hilarious because we have a really dark sense of humor. So like when we're making the movie, there is what what's in, like why it's such a gift one to work with Kate and Jane and then also um, Jay, who really understand um, the the like the 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 depth and and the sorrow of these th- these things that we're talking about, but also understand that there's a level of humor to it. And so when we're on set, it's like we're we're all talking about it, and it is. And but our sense of humor is so dark that we're laughing the entire time, you know. So this this movie is very much about catching ideas and you know contagious thought and i'm curious sort of when this idea caught for you became contagious enough to become a feature film and what do you think makes an idea contagious at sort of the root of the idea i mean i think there's definitely i think with the on the contagious element of um on just specific on uh ideas i think there at least in this at least I think there's different ways that things can be contagious. Right. But I think that 
what I was trying to get to is like when fear takes root in you, you know, and how contagious that can be. And we've seen this occurring in media for years, you know, because again, it's, I made this before the coronavirus, um, but like, you know, how contagious fear is. And um, I think when, and fear takes hold and like kind of, even if you're like, even if at first you're like, I'm not afraid of that. like some corner of you is like, well, I am because it's self-preservation. So there's something like a, like a little, there's a little like spike that like fear leaves behind that you can't get really get rid of because there's a part of you, once your body and once your brain, here's something that scares you. It's like you're just in self-preservation, like fight or flight. There's a part of you that's like, I'm going to keep one eye open when I sleep. You know, like, so like it, so it is, it, it sticks with you and then it, and then it becomes very contagious. But, um, but with this, it was, I, I was dealing with my own anxiety and, um, and I, I wanted to, I had these ideas of, of, of sort of expressing it in, in sort of Kate's performance more in a movement sense you know and so like some of the early stuff that shot in my house of her touching the walls and like her doing her relationship and watching her move through the house is all stuff that I was like this I want to explore this in this um with Kate in this way of trying to get at what's happening inside where outside it seems like kind of weird uh and mundane in a way if you observe me of like what it looks like from the outside of my behavior dealing with my anxiety of trying to distract myself. But then what happens if, if like, if, if we let the audience into what it like feels like, like the, the, the flash and the sounds and like the, like what it actually feels like internally, even though from the outside, it looks like this, you know, <laughs> even from the outside, it looks very mundane. Um, and so that idea, um, we started with that idea and then we shot that idea, Jamie and Kate, and um, and then I was like, oh, in real life, I realized when I was talking about my anxiety, I was like giving, quite literally, making other people anxious, you know, and kind of giving them one of them actually being Jane Adams, <laughs> my real life friend. <laughs> and so I was like, Jane's in the movie. Now Jane has it. Now Jane's anxious and and so on and so forth. So that was sort of a, it was like a very organic development of that idea. And then being really in tune with my own anxiety of like, oh yeah. And, and then, and then at a certain point I wrote the rest of the movie and we made the rest of the movie, but it was, it was like being in tune with like using my own real life as inspiration for uh, letting the story unfold. Just to explore the flip side of that a little, I mean, I, I guess, I guess this kind of gets into the the conversation of like, can you fight this in the context of your movie at all? But like, what's what's the good side of it? The the side of you know expressing your fear to somebody else in a way that could actually maybe help both of you in the process. Yeah, I mean, you know, well, well part of it is there's a lot to it. So like part of it was this desire of, let's put it this way. Like, even though I feel like when I talk about anxiety, I'm making somebody else anxious, there is no way in, I can tell I could try to find all the words in the English language and any language to try to express to you exactly how I'm feeling at any given time, but there's no way to actually transplant exactly how I'm feeling into you. Right. So like you can sit there and go, I understand, I understand, but there's no, there is, there's, there's empathy, but that's as far as you get, you know, or your own, you can only draw off your own life experiences, but to like actually transplant that. And like at at certain times when it's hard for me to express the level of anxiety that I'm going through, there's part of me that's just like, I just wish I could just go and like throw it on somebody. And then they go, Oh, you know, (laughs) like there is a sort of a sick, um, uh, like gratification of of the, the way that this spreads in the movie, you know what I mean? Even though it's sort of it's very anxious, and but there is sort of a sick gratification of like, oh wow, now she, it's like a, I told you so, like you didn't believe me, I told you, I told you, you know, it's there is sort of a, a, a yeah a sick gratification of like, wouldn't it be great if like you could like 
be like, this really sucks. And so everyone's like, oh, okay, you'll get over it. And you're like, oh, really? Well, feel this, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you mentioned that you, you know, you shot the opening scenes in your house. The character is named Amy. Jane is named Jane, who's your real life friend. And a lot of viewers won't pick up on that. But for those who do, it, it invites a different meta experience of the film. And I'm curious, sort of the, the intentionality and motivation behind making that audience experience a part of the film. Well, I said this on set and I, and I, and I was, and I said, this is funny now. It's not going to be funny when I have to talk about it. Because <laughs> it's funny to like hear your name and like you're on set and you're like, this is so meta and like whatever. And, but there also was the decision to, to get rid of the artifice and just be like, I'm writing about myself. I mean, obviously this is, it's fantastical and I'm taking it to this other level, but like, um, you know, the, there, there, there is this, I, I, I knew there'd be a select few people that would understand that it was, that it was about me. And like, I'm sure like being John, like there, there being a, um, a being John Malkovich element to it, you know, um, in, in, in one way, but I also knew that it would reach people that were just watching a movie. So I wasn't like, it didn't feel too invasive for me. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I mean, it's strange to talk about the movie given the times and it's straight like COVID, but it's also strange to talk about. It's now very strange for me to talk about something where it's like quite obviously I intentionally named her Amy and I'm like, do I regret this right now? (laughs) Like, you know, and, and, but it's also, it's also easy because I don't have to pretend I don't have to pretend or come up with some metaphor for, for that. Like, yeah, it's just, I can just talk about what I was going through, you know, is there any particular, uh, sorry. So for me as one of the people who does love Jane Adams and your work and picked up on all that, um, it, it felt like a sort of bridge for the contagious idea into the real world into me was that at all any intentional part of the design or am I to up my own ass about film analysis yes like that's the the idea is like part of the anxiety of watching the movie is is the content yeah is the contagious element the knowing that it's going to be publicly screened and that people are going to be watching it and it's part of the like the sort of reflexive fear base where it's like, they're saying this, I know it's a movie. I don't believe it, but now I'm like, and now I have anxiety about my own death. Like, even though I like, like I I have no idea when you're going to die, but you're going to, and I'm going to. And so, so it's like, it's so, I was very aware that it's like, it's going to make everyone think about their own mortality. Therefore it's part of this, reflexive contagious thing <laughs> that the movie is doing and I should, I would feel bad about it like but I it's not like it's not like that was gonna like your death was gonna go away whether I made the movie or not you know so is there any is there any particular surprising what's up Haley I said I would say it was an effective strategy <laughs> Good. especially effective right now i mean given given what we're going through right now when you most recently watched the movie from beginning to end is there any particular i don't know like a theme or idea or something that maybe you didn't even realize was there at the very beginning that all of a sudden popped out to you I, I'm going to be very honest. I haven't watched the film from the beginning to the end since all of this has taken place. Um, I mean, I, I have for like technical reasons, but that's like a whole other way you watch it, like color and sound and all, and all this stuff, like finishing that stuff during quarantine. Like what we did, we finished um, some of the mixes and some of the, um, the color passes just for technical reasons, not, not, the creative was done before any of this happened. So a lot of the stuff of me going back and revisiting it was like very specific tech things, um, like, you know, for, for QC and stuff. So this tonight will, I guess tonight will be 
I don't know. Do I really want to watch it? I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, it, this week will be the first time that I that I will have seen it from beginning to end. Um, so I, I will report back. Please do. <laughs> Just going back to the group of characters you have here, did you know from the very beginning who was going to be in the film? Not not from an actor perspective, but just the characters included, because I feel like this is a concept where, you know, so many different types of people in different situations in their lives are going to have a different reaction to going through this. So was that kind of a trial and error thing as you were putting together the script or did you know who was going to be in it? I knew I knew that Kate was Amy. I knew Jane was Jane, <laughs> and I um, and then I because of the nature of of like independent film or just the nature of this film too. I knew the types of people that I wanted to be in, but then I also in making independent film, you also have an availability issue, right? So I I first reached. I was lucky enough to get basically my first choices, you know? So when I reached out to people, we, I, I was like, okay, great. They're available. Now I'm building this around them, you know? Okay, great. Now this, and so basically it was, it was, it was like, I knew the types of people, I knew the storylines, but I, it, but the, but who was going to execute it and how that was going to like actually happen with, and I do this even with, um, with all of my work is like based on the person who's cast, then it's like, I'll maybe do a rewrite knowing that, you know? Um, so everyone that was in the film, it was, it was sort of like, uh, they knew what they were going to do, but they knew I was going to rewrite it for them. If that makes sense. Which, which casting choice wound up with the most significant rewrite? Well, uh, let's see, I guess, I guess it would be Josh Lucas and Michelle Rodriguez and, and Olivia, um, I, that's three people, but because I didn't, I, well, I know Olivia, but, um, I didn't know, I, I had had one meeting with Michelle and really, really liked her. And, um, and I, and she was like, just call me whenever you want to do so. Let's do some weird stuff. And I was like, let's see if she really means that. And so like years later, I was like, do you want to do some weird stuff? And she was like, I just have one day left on Fast and the Furious. Talk about a massive machine. Um, and I was like, okay, well then, and she's like, so I only have like six hours. Can you work with that? And I was like, sure. And so I was just like, and I, I delivered on my promise. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I was like, okay, I'm going to set this up. So we have six hours to shoot Michelle Rodriguez out, but I already, I already knew what the idea was. And I shoot really fast just from having worked in television. Um, and I also like know what I want. So like I was able to shoot her out, but I just didn't know what to write for that character, save like the, the scenes where it's like, I'm, or I'm sky and I, and I'm dying. Um, and like that whole exchange, but I didn't know, you know, I just didn't know what to, what, what, what to expect. And so, so the scene with Olivia and, and her at the pool, um, the, that's the only scene in the movie that's completely improvised. I was just like, you do you it's the end of the movie and like you if you go wandering and you go over here it's the right time to do it you know what i mean because it's sort of that's the the feeling of, of the end of the movie is sort of like my brain is here and now it's there and i don't know because like when's it gonna happen like let's just keep talking until it happens and i actually because i didn't know her that well she's like she's like trying to get the vibe of the movie and i was like why don't i just play you this song so i just played her and Olivia Peggy Lee's um, "Is That All There Is," and I was like, "This is the tone." It's like you know, uh, you know, is that all there is to a circus, you know, or whatever. It's like that's that's the, that's the mood right now. Is like, when's it gonna end? Who knows? But was that it? Like you know, was that what life was? That's the mood of the thing. So it was the perfect opportunity to allow them to improvise. You know, when it comes to the more like. Uh visual elements of the film how did you arrive at the the visual language for expressing that that dread and um anxiety oh um i mean pacing and 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 like i i had the edit in my head but like pacing and then col- and colors and and sort of like just constantly ratcheting up tension 
not just in the the visual, like the, the shots we chose, but also in the intensity of the visuals and how far we were willing to push it and making sure that like with Jay, making sure we were, we earned some of those things. You know what I mean? Of like building up slowly to these massively like wild, um, you know, wild visuals and wild sort of like lights and flashing and all of these things and, and, and really just paying attention to like earning all of those moments. Um, but on the, on a really fun side, Jay and I have known each other for a very long time. He shot Sun Don't Shine and he also shot uh, the second season of the girlfriend experience. And um, we've just, we've just worked together for so long that the fun part is that we really get each other but we're also, because we really get each other, the communication doesn't need to be about seeing if we're on the same page. It can be about going further and experimenting with the knowledge that we already know and like knowing that we already have the same taste. So a lot of this, like a lot of the visuals were really me and Jay just going for it and having kind of like playfully like enjoying that we got to like play with all this knowledge that we, that we had built over the years making films and go, let's just try something new, you know, and experiment with like these visuals um, and experiment in the right way. So that it really was Jay and I kind of like little kids playing with um, not just like lenses in a, in a very dorky way, but, but also, um, you know, these in the body sort of stuff. Uh, we were, I went to like Michael's and bought like Rit dye and glitter and put dirt. And it was like, it's, you know, when you make potions as a kid and you just, you're like soap and ketchup and whatever, like it was literally what I was doing in my garage. And I was just pouring these things on this piece of plexiglass. And Jay had this camera on this, um, on this track that was like, uh, you couldn't touch it because it was on a lens, this, this macro lens that was like so tight. And so he was just like, he was, he was, um, controlling the camera and he'd do these movements. And I just would like throw things on this plexiglass and we would like look at the monitor and be like, that's neat. And it was just like a whole, and we did a lot of that in the beginning and then learned, um, and, and through experimenting like that, then learned how to control it. Um, and get the actual visuals that we wanted. We're like, that worked. Let's do that again. So it was like a process of experimenting, but then we were able to like, with that ex- experimentation, be like, now we can control it. Cause we just discovered something with glitter and I don't know, a plant in my front yard that looks really cool. Um, so, so that's sort of the way. With the, uh, the, biological in the body imagery was that something that you you had in your head as part of the concept from when you first originated the idea for the film or was that strictly something you guys discovered by playing around like that i had a um this is gonna sound like a stoner idea but like um but you know like but i'm just gonna call myself out on it just like this idea that like if you go inward to go outward like if you look like a, a, a tiny like a grain of sand could be a planet or whatever, but you know, like the, but that in order to go outward, you had to go inward and you had to look at the body and see how the body. And I don't, I don't know that's, I'm going to go as far as that. Cause I'm, it's going to sound like I'm smoking too much weed, but like, um, <laughs> but you know what? Like it, it was, it was part of it because there was also the, the level of like, the the body even I, I I actually one of the things and I'm my my sister's best friend Piper is a um, radiologist and one of the things is that we always like think that like doctors know the answers to everything and she spends her days like looking at images and she she knows and she's trained with like what things you know what things to look out for. But all doctors, like, they constantly discover these things within the body that they're like, I have no idea what that is. And then they have to do these autopsies and dinner, you know, like, and so it was just like really kind of liberating and scary to hear from my sister's best friend um, that like, yes, she, she is like at the full, at full, like with all the knowledge that she has, you know, that she is looking inside the, the human body and even she finds things where she's like, I, I don't understand that. And so that became like, like the human body inside became like this mystery in a way 
to me and fascinating in, a way, in the same way that like the beyond and death and like sort of the universe became. See, now I'm sounding stoned, but it was it was rooted in actual factual, like a, an intelligent conversation with a radiologist. But you know what I mean? Where it's like it's like, oh wow, so we don't know even the most like studied people don't know about the human body. That's like the universe, which is like the oceans. You know? <laughs> so <laughs> this is also transferring another freaky idea into my head, and now the next time I go to a doctor, I'm gonna be like, nope, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love I love how just creative and er- and uh, experimental you are. So I I was curious, like, does being confined during quarantine give you that itch to create with new mediums? We're just seeing so many things being, you know, movies being made just over Zoom. And I don't know. I would just love to know what you would want to create in with those kinds of tools. With like with the with like quarantine and everything. Yeah. I don't know. I've been thinking about that. I've been, I mean, I've been doing a lot of writing, um, but there, there's like, I do have like, it's like, it, I think it would be really interesting to shoot something where it's just like all wide shots. Cause I kind of get bored with the aesthetic of the zoom stuff, you know? And I get it. I know a lot of people that are doing it and, and like I, and I applaud it and that's really awesome. But like, I want, I want to see, because I know people are doing that, I'm like, I'm not doing that. Like, um, so like, it would just be like, I, I, it's like a whole movie of just like wide shots and trying to figure out how you could build tension or um, wide shots, obviously for like social distancing purposes, right? So like everyone can be like really far away, um, and and like and trying to figure out if that's possible during COVID is to like socially distance so far away from people that you still can make a, a dramatic movie would be a, a, like a feat and an interest. I, I might fail, but nobody has to see it. You know, like, I won't put it out if it's bad. Like, I'm like curious now. I kind of want you to give it a shot. Yeah, cool. Uh, well, you bring up the social distancing and certainly everyone is existing with a, a new sense of isolation and perhaps uh, tied into the film anxiety that they might not be used to on a normal basis. As you are starting to do your press rounds for this, and uh, I know it hasn't reached audiences yet, but have you noticed a difference in a way people are experiencing the film compared to those who might have seen it during the festival run? I didn't have a festival run, so I didn't have a chance to sort of compare it. Was, I mean, what? I know there were early reviews. Am I crazy? No. Well, we let them see it, but we let we let press see it in advance of South by Southwest. Okay. But it was already approaching. Do you know what I mean? It was already it was already coming, and it was very eerie for them because it hadn't even we nobody was on lockdown yet. And nobody really knew the extent of what it was. So it was sort of like probably even more anxious for them. I got to be honest, like probably more anxious for the early audience because the unknown is always scarier. And it was like when they were watching it, it was like, is South by going to be canceled or not? And then it was canceled. And then it was just like every day or every hour was a new thing that was developing. So I, I feel like the my only comparison that I can like it would be is early COVID and then now. Um and and I'm I think it's sunk in a lot for people watching it right now of like the they're more like they're more attuned to the 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 isolation, you know, and the not really knowing what to do whereas i think it the early audiences when they were watching it it was playing into like we don't know what's going to happen like the unknown was the was the the scary element in the anxiety side of it i think i feel like it's probably a an interesting movie to revisit regularly for that reason <laughs> like no matter what the current event yeah. is I imagine it colors the experience a different way yeah, exactly. <laughs> I I mean that. Thank you. Yes, I I hope so. But I don't. You know, if it if it causes people anxiety, then like maybe don't. You know. Haley, <laughs> um, do we want to switch into a brief spoiler conversation as we wind down? Yeah, let's do it. Sure. 
Okay. So I get, I, I, yeah, I guess this belongs in a spoiler section. So spoiler warning for She Dies Tomorrow. If you have not seen it yet, this part of the conversation is not for you. I highly recommend checking it out, then coming back and revisiting this part of the conversation. All right. So I was wondering if you ever reconsidered giving the fear to a child. Like the whole, <laughs> the whole thing is very dark and upsetting, but like a young child getting it might be the darkest of them all. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, but that's that's why you have to do it. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it's why you. That's why because the thing is, is it's like it was important to go there because because you're with the thing that I'm talking about, it's like, it's an idea that you're spreading. Right. And so it doesn't, it does, it's, it's an idea that you're spreading. Nobody knows how or why you're going to die, but like you just are. And now you have the knowledge. So like, and there's different ways that people were, were responding to with that knowledge. Right. And when Jane gives the, gives it to, um, to, uh, to Katie and Chris, these are the actors, uh, Susan and, and, um, and Jason in the movie, she's, she's spreading an idea and their reaction is to blame somebody. Right. Um, so then, cause they don't even really realize what's happening and they've given it to their daughter. And then when their daughter has it, they're like, we've got to blame somebody for this. And it's your sister's fucking fault. And what they don't realize is they're the ones that spread it and there is nobody to blame. So it's like, it's, it's like whoever has done wrong to you. Right. And you feel entitled to um, do wrong to somebody else because you, you, um, you pass this on, you know, you pass like the, like the, the sins of your, your, your forefathers. Right. Um, so I had to, like, I had to, if I'm doing ideological contagion and, and the sort of like obtuse effects of it, you have to pass it on to the next generation. You know what I mean? <laughs> Sad, but true. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. obviously, um, I feel, you know, this is coming. We have to discuss the leather jacket, but specifically um, listening to you talk about exploring the inside of the body and the mysteries of the unknown that final sequence in which he describes the process almost strikes me as the opposite as is in breaking the human body down to its basis, most knowable parts. Was that designed as a sort of yin to the yang, so to speak? I don't love that verbiage, but you know what I mean? A, a balancing effect of those ideas. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's incredibly, um, when you really break it down in a, in like, when I was, we'll put it this way. When I was dealing with my, my father, I had to take care of my father and he passed away. And in dealing with, um, with taking care of the remains is what, what they say. And then like your, your body, like Kate's reaction is sort of the experience of like your father's gone. And then people start talking, saying the words remains to you. And it becomes this really surreal process and it becomes very sobering in a way, you know, there's like no emotion to it aside from like, am I picking the right urn out? Right. But like, you have to talk about these things in these very like sort of crass, it's not crass. I, I don't want to judge it because it just is. It's just, there's a body we need to deal with it. And you're the person that gets it. Cause I was like power of attorney and medical surrogate. So it's like, we got a body you're the person that we have that has to deal with it. So now we have to talk like this. I know you're going through a hard time, but like, this is the way that it is. So it is, it's like when we talk about death and the unknown, there's also this incredibly real and sobering aspect to it, which is what do you do with the remains? Whether, whether it's the body or, you know, the cremation or whatever, it's like, there's a very, uh, or at least in at least in my experience of what i i have experienced with that there's like you have you, the pain will, never goes away and that's something that's like unresolved but there are things when you're going through it that you have to deal with it's just very sobering and real you know and so that was like important to like sort of keep in there as well where it's like it, you can be like this and be like oh the pain's like crushing but it's like 
you still have to be like, <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing. It's really painful. But I, when I was at the crematorium with my, the, my sister and my mom who was helping us with it, the guy, <laughs> the guy who was like selling us the like ur- the urn <laughs> and the box or whatever, um, and the, and then giving us an, an estimate, <laughs> even the word estimate in association with this, an estimate on how much it was going to be to cremate my father. It's not funny. It's terrible, but it's funny to me. He, I was, we were all in so much pain, but he, there was like, I don't know what year he like decided to stop participating in the world, but he, there were no computers there. And the way that he was like adding up the estimate was with an adding machine. Um, I don't even know what these are, but like he types in a number and every time he types a number, there's a delay like on a piece of paper. So he's like, okay, so for the urn. And so there's this, this like aspect of it. You can hear the like, you can hear the numbers of like your dad's death, like adding up, like quite literally. Whereas like for the urn, you hear, and it's like, and for the cremation, and it's like, and for the medical, whatever, like you, you can hear it. And every time it was happening, I, my body was going like this. And then I just started uncontrollably laughing because obviously I think things, and my sister was like hitting me and she's like, stop it, stop it, stop it. Act like, act like you're taking this seriously. I'm like, I am taking it seriously. Like I, what else am I going to do? Like I have no choice, but I can't believe this, like how absurd and like awful that like, I'm like, I can quite literally hear the numbers of, of my dad's remains. Do you know what I mean? Like that. And also the guy had pictures of his cat everywhere. It was just like so much to take in that it's (laughs) that death becomes this like absurd 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 thing because your your emotions are so heightened you know that that but but it doesn't take away from the fact that you have to deal with like what are you going to do with the body you know i feel like his day to day could be the great su- a great subject for a really dark oh, I, but he went to make copies of something on a probably a 1980s copy machine but like of of the at the whatever of a contract and as he was out of the room i took my phone and started taking pictures i hope this guy doesn't i, I will never say where it is i respect his privacy but i started taking pictures of like around his office and my sister was like stop it you are so out of control right now but like we were laughing i was like what do you want me to do i'm trying like i'm trying to like cheer myself up in a horrible situation and i was like these cats somebody somebody else has to see this and i'm like the adding machine and like taking pictures and i was like this is how i cope okay like um (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes you just got to have a laugh like that. I get it. <laughs> Especially sister sound like she doesn't have a sense of humor. She was laughing, but she also is the one that like, is like, we have to behave. You know, she's like, she's like, so but has a different personality. I'm, she's laughing with me, but she's like, we should not be laughing right now. Like, stop it, stop it, stop it. But like, I was just like, I don't fucking care. Like nothing worse could happen right now. I'm like, you know, my dad's dead. Like, what, like. Yeah, sorry. That's that's how you have to. But also, it doesn't take away from the immense pain I was feeling. You know what I mean? It's just like, like, what do you do? Shit hit the fan. Like, I have to laugh. You know. So, if it makes you feel any better, I got in trouble for laughing at my father's funeral as well. So I completely oh, too. terrible. Like the worst because because there's these moments that you're like, I cannot believe. It's so surreal, right? Like I laugh because. I laugh because the people singing Amazing Grace forgot the lyrics and they were like, they were trying to do a duet and like one of them was singing a verse from another, um, like from the wrong part of the song and the other, and they couldn't get on track. And I was like, I can't believe this is happening. And I was laughing and my sister and I were holding each other and we were laughing. And I, later after my friend came up to me, she's like, oh my God. And when they started singing Amazing Grace and you burst into, te- like vocally burst into tears, I like lost it and started crying. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I wasn't actually crying. I'm sorry that made you cry. I was laughing hysterically. And like, again, I was also maniacal because it was my dad's funeral. I was also sobbing hysterically, but there's like so much to take in that it's just like, I just couldn't like. Like, yeah, sorry. But yes, I'm glad that you did too. (laughs) I don't know how to follow that up. (laughs) 
<laughs> Do we want to roll into our, our usual last two questions? It feels like a prime opportunity. It does. I feel like I'll, I'll steal the first one. And I feel like the, the cat comment makes a bridge to this. We ask all of our guests this. Do you have any pets? I don't. I don't. I know. My boyfriend does. And it's his name is Lou. And he is he is the, the I, I not that I'm saying not that I want me and my boyfriend to break up. But I, I do know that I might, uh, and God, I hate saying this, but he'll understand because he loves this dog too, because it's his dog. But I think I might, it might take me longer to get over Lou than <laughs> it would my boyfriend. Be, you know what I mean? Like in the long run, like I know because because not, and it actually makes me sad sometimes. Not that I think about us breaking up, but like, but like it makes me sad sometimes because I'm like, wow. I know how to get over a breakup. I don't think I can get over your dog. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> You're talking to two very intense animal lovers. <laughs> I totally get that. Yeah. Uh, has, has being in lockdown made you reconsider not having a pet at all? Yeah, yeah. But luckily, like, I get Lou. You know what I mean? Like, luckily, I get him. So, yeah. yeah. So it's like having a pet. But what What is Lou? He's just a little mutt. He's so cute. He's a little underbite. He's just like, he's like the weirdest, neurotic, but like sweetest, gentle dog ever. He's a rescue. But uh, he's so cute. He's so sweet. Yeah. Mutts are like just the best. Like, I love that. We love her. Um. So our, our other question that we always ask our guests is, what is something that you've either read or watched or played, books, comic books, video games, movies, TV shows, whatever, that's in the genre fear, sphere that you really want people to go check out? What have I read? Read, specifically? Anything. It could oh. basically anything genre that you think people should go look for. Mm, 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 mm. Let's see. I'm trying to think of like something good. I really like coherence a lot. I think that's a really good independent phone, right? That is like tells you what you can really do if you're like think about like a budget and think very smartly about it. Um, I'm trying to think of another like sort of job. you know like and and then on that vein of like dealing with anxiety and sort of um, and doing a sort of uh, working with with sort of horror tropes, but like spinning it into something wildly original would be Josephine Decker's work. Yeah, Those are cool. it really deals with like anxiety, and, it, and they feel like horror films in a way, but they're not. You know, but her work is absolutely incredible. With like butter on the latch, and um, that was uh, was I can never say the title of that movie. Um, that 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 was lovely. So whatever, it's a great movie. I can't, I can never remember because <laughs> she went to Princeton and I didn't. And, um, and then, uh, and then Madeline's Madeline and her new one, Shirley too. Shirley is just like, I feel like I was up to my eyeballs in anxiety watching that. And I wasn't entirely prepared for it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I guess like, that's what I mean is that I still consider her stuff like genre in a way. Coherence is a very good poll too. I love that. All right. That's it. We're winding down now. Another reminder to everybody out there to check out She Dies Tomorrow if you haven't already. Amy, is there anywhere you want to plug social media-wise, anything at all that you want our viewers to uh, know where to find you and your work? I don't want them to find me, um, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Um... <laughs> I just to be quite honest, but, uh, but, the, but neon, the, there is a she dies tomorrow, um, Instagram page. And, and then there's also the, the, um, a Twitter, uh, handle for it. And then there's also neon. You can look on, uh, um, who, who puts out the one of or some of the best content that is out at this point. So, yeah, I'll just emphasize that again. Neon is amazing. Filmography yeah. <laughs> is something else. Amy, thank you again for hanging out with us today. Another congratulations on the movie. Thank you so much. Thanks right. to everybody out there watching. You have officially survived the witching hour.
Hey, little chico, pitbull, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary.